All right. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark 12. We are going to uh, read at verse 38 in just a little while. Let me organize all these papers up here. Um, recently, I heard a pastor tell a very sad story about his own church, um, about his church before his arrival some 20 years ago or more. Um, this is not a Sovereign Grace pastor. It's not a church in our denomination of churches. But let's not think that that means it's impossible for our church uh, or churches that we're um, in, our, in, our, in our denomination to go through this same sort of ordeal. Um, when this pastor came and first started preaching at his church, this small body of believers had gone through a terrible ordeal. Um, their former pastor was, uh, he was just an awful pastor. Um, likely he hadn't always been this way. Certainly he must have made some sort of positive and favorable impression upon them uh, when he had first started his ministry uh, at this church. Um, but when his ministry came to an end uh, at this church, it was after what seemed by the description given to me, uh, after years of selfish and self-centered leadership that no doubt had caused great suffering uh, in this church. Uh, the church had a, a board of lay elders um, who recognized that this pastor was unfit uh, for ministry at the church, um, but they were unable to persuade him to go, and they were unable to actually get him to exit the ministry there. Um, the church was under a congregational style of rule, which meant big decisions like this needed to be brought before the whole body, and they needed to vote on that, every member to vote on uh, whether to remove this pastor from office. Uh, and this pastor happened to have lots of family and friends who were technically members of this church, but who never attended the church. So the votes would come up. He would invite all his family and friends to come, they would vote for him, they would carry the vote, and the church couldn't uh, remove him. Uh, finally, they found a way out of this. He was willing to accept a great deal of money to leave this church. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars later, they were finally free from this pastor uh, that had brought great spiritual and now financial harm to the church as well. A church that he was supposed to care for a church that he was supposed to build up, a church that he was supposed to sacrifice himself for. Uh, we're continuing through our study of the gospel according to Mark on our quest to know Jesus. And at this point in Mark's account, uh, Jesus is in the final week of his life. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and I'm going to read from Mark 12, verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This message is titled, The Danger and Blessing of Leaders. Jesus knew that he would soon suffer and die on the cross, 
Uh, and as his days to instruct his disciples um, uh, neared an end, Jesus warned them about the scribes. Now, why did he warn them in particular about these men? The, the disciples had witnessed firsthand the scribes' rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They had seen them contend with him, try to entrap him, try to ruin his ministry. Surely, Jesus' disciples didn't need him to tell them not to follow the scribes after Jesus had departed. So why did Jesus call out the scribes? Jesus did this. He called out the scribes for the same reason that I told you the story about the pastor who demanded payment to leave his pastorate. The scribes were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. They, they were relied upon to interpret scripture, to apply the scriptures to everyday life for the people, and to teach the people God's word. They were spiritual leaders. They were disciple makers. They were important to the spiritual life of Israel. Jesus knows that self-serving leaders are dangerous to God's church. Self-serving leaders will bring suffering to the people of God. They'll, they'll please themselves to the detriment of the people that they're called to serve. Assuming that these self-centered leaders are good at putting on a show, and then they're going to convince these people that they're worthy of following, and they're going to make disciples that are just like them, which would probably be even a worse damage to the church than financial or than the suffering they could bring. Here's what Jesus is saying and what I hope to expound uh, for you today. Beware of self-serving leaders so that you don't suffer under them and become like them. Beware of self-serving leaders so that you don't suffer under them and become like them. Proud Selfish leaders are a great danger to God's church. So watch out for them and don't fall under their influence. Jesus is pointing to a negative example here, obviously, a negative example of, well, of a failed Christian life. Uh, and giving, given our own spiritual pride, we're apt to look at the scribes and feel good about ourselves. So let's ask for the Spirit's help not to do that. Let's ask for the Spirit to help us to humbly listen to our Savior and to his teaching today. Uh, we all have a sphere of, of influence, even authority over others. Many of you lead here at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, many of you are husbands. In fact, many of the husbands are in children's ministry. Maybe they'll get to listen to this later. Our husbands called to lead your wives, uh, your mothers and fathers called to lead and shepherd your children, your employers, your managers, uh, your supervisors in the workplace. Uh, most of us have someone who looks to us to uh, lead them through life. Uh, and if you don't now, you will later. And if you don't now, you probably did in the past. So let's hear Jesus speak to us about godly versus ungodly authority. There's three points that I'm gonna bring to you. Uh, the first one is beware of leaders who are proud. Secondly, beware of leaders who misuse their authority. And lastly, follow leaders who are servant-hearted. All right, the first point, beware of leaders who are proud. 
Uh, Jesus' concern about these men, the scribes, is precisely connected to their leadership. The scribes had authority over the people. Uh, and Jesus, he knows about authority. Uh, after his resurrection, Jesus opened the Great Commission saying, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Those who heard Jesus teach recognized an otherworldly authority about him. Uh, the scribes, the chief priests, the, the elders, they bristled under the, the authority of Jesus and challenged his authority on many occasions. Jesus, being the divine son of God, has divine authority. Jesus is in the best place to recognize misplaced, misused, abused authority. And then note how Jesus criticized the scribes. He didn't condemn them for misinterpreting the scriptures. He didn't even condemn them for, for rejecting him as their Messiah. Jesus instead focused on their character and its outworking in their behavior. What fault did he find? What fault did Jesus find in these leaders of Israel? First, the Lord said that the scribes like to walk around in long robes. Okay, get bathrobes out of your mind. I gave Kit a bathrobe for Mother's Day. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, robes were the fashion in Palestine in this age. We've all seen uh, movies set in Rome, that sort of robe. That's what these people would have been wearing, men and women both wearing robes. Uh, these, though, that the scribes wore, they weren't your off-the-rack from Target sort of robes. Uh, these men were dressed for attention. Uh, these robes were likely uh, longer than normal robes so that they were flowing as they walked by. They were likely fringed decoratively around the bottom and around the cuffs with decorations. Um, these guys wore robes that were meant to attract your attention when they walked by. Commentator David Garland uh, nails these guys. He gets it. He says about them, what precisely these long robes were is not important. Why they wore them, that's important. To set themselves apart from others and to augment their authority. And listen to what he says next. Jesus' authority is connected to his teaching. The scribes' authority is connected to their clothing, which is a sad comparison. The, the scribes are the people who outdressed you in high school. Um, they're, they're, you might have been really nice, you might have been, uh, had all the makings of a great friend, but these people, they had the fashionable clothes, they had what you should be wearing, and probably, undeservedly, possibly, the popularity that maybe you ought to have had. The scribes are not only proud, and that's what they are, they're proud, they were proud for the absolute wrong reason. And we could do the same thing. We could do it about clothing. We could do it about many other things. Um, I was going to say, don't think for a second that I didn't think about what I wore today. But actually, I got so dre dressed so quickly today that I didn't give it a lot of thought. But normally, I do think about what I'm wearing in front of you. And the question becomes, am I dressed as I'm dressed, trying to convince you that I'm something I'm not, that I'm a great Bible teacher, that I'm a holy man somehow by the way I dress before you. Now, hopefully, 
hopefully I know my heart. I think all I'm trying to do is not wear such awful colors together that I'm a complete distraction to you as I'm talking to you. But, but it could be that there's many ways we try to make impressions to people in ways that we ought not to. Okay, next Jesus noted that the scribes like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, we all enjoy, to be cre- enjoy being greeted. In fact, uh, we should greet one another. When you come to church together especially, you should greet each other by name, know each other, and greet each other. Um, so how can enjoying being greeted be condemnable? Uh, these were not, they weren't likely just, hey, Bill, how you doing sort of greetings. Um, people didn't greet the scribes just because they were really nice guys. These greetings were about status. They were about importance. Bible scholar Tremper Longman notes that uh, in Jesus' day, those of lower status were expected to greet those higher up. And religious leaders were addressed with honorific titles as, such as rabbi, father, and master. Please don't do that to Ron and I. Don't, don't call us rabbi, father, and master. We prefer not to do that. In fact, we don't even prefer pastor, but if, if you can't help yourself, go ahead and do that, I suppose. Um, you have to wonder whether these guys walked around town to get their business done or whether they walked around town to get their egos pumped up. You see, pride, um, pride seeks attention. So it seeks attention, it demands respect and honor, even when you don't deserve it. Husbands, a warning. You and I, we can't offend our wives repeatedly with our sin and, and then expect, resp- expect respect and honor in the short term. The same thing for parents over children. We can't We can't mistreat them with our sin and then expect them in those moments to give us respect and honor or even in an ongoing fashion. But thanks be to God for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, for God's forgiveness through Christ, for for our sins put away, for the forgiveness of others as we repent of our sins. Apart from God's gracious work, we would never warrant any respect and honor. Next, Jesus brought up two ways that these religious leaders were honored. The scribes got the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They liked these honors. This was pretty cool to them. Um, The seats in the synagogue that we're talking about, they were were up front. There were a platform up front uh, where um, you were, you, you, you didn't get these seats unless you were an A-lister. I mean, you had to be someone to get these seats. Score these seats, and you'd be seen by everybody during the entire religious service that they were holding, and you'd be perfectly positioned to come up and take the mic and teach the people. Uh, these guys, they were teachers, and they wanted to be seen this way, and they lobbied, no doubt, for these VIP seats. And places of honor at feasts, that's fairly easy for us to understand. These were the, the, the seats that would be closest. Now we're talking about big feasts, lots of, a big long table or lots of tables and, and many guests. And these were the seats that were closest to the host or closest to uh, the people that were being honored by that feast. 
they were the most important people in the room. David Garland gets what Jesus is doing here. He says uh, he's condemning the longing of these teachers of the law. They're longing for human adulation. Um, here we are again, face to face with pride. Pride seeks others' affirmation. Uh, it seeks to be affirmed continually rather than to seek God's well-done, good and faithful servant. Friends, it's, it's easy for us to get tripped up here. Um, it's easy for us to um, seek to be known and greeted and honored in an effort to uh, feel good, even to feel better about ourselves. Instead, let me suggest, instead we should find our joy and our worth in God's affirming us as his daughter, as his sons, simply because we're united together with Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous, the only one who is good, the only one who, is, who is, um, um, should be honored and should receive our adulation. The problem with pride is that, is that God hates it. God hates pride. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And that's, that's scathing. God's response to our self-exaltation is abomination. Pride earns divine disgust, divine hatred. And it earns divine hatred because pride seeks glory for self rather than glory for God Almighty. Pride is, as the psalmist writes in 104, he says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So pride is hated by God because it seeks self-glory rather than God's glory. God hates pride also because pride keeps us from, from seeing or even admitting our need for God's unmerited favor. The benefits, and death, the benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are only for those who are humbled, who realize their unworthiness in light of God's great and wonderful, perfect righteousness. And then God also hates pride because pride does what John Stott so wisely recognized. Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. If pride can't prevent our salvation through faith in Christ, then pride will seek to keep us to being immature. It'll keep us to being ungodly and not growing in Christ. Even after we're humbled and we enter into the Lord's saving work uh, uh, for us on the cross, we have an ongoing need for humility, to grow in humility so that we weaken and defeat the myriad of sins that are so strongly rooted in pride. God's perspective is that the scribes are unfit leaders of Israel because of their unbridled pride. They exalted themselves over others and they, exalt themselves, they exalted themselves over God himself. And Jesus highlights the pride of the scribes so that we will refuse to promote 
the proud at heart to leadership so that we will refuse to attach ourselves to arrogant leaders so that we won't wrongheadedly cultivate rather than crucify the pride of our own hearts. And the second point, the second point is beware of leaders who misuse their authority. The scribes will be condemned on the day of judgment because of their pride and even more so because of their actions that flowed out of their arrogant hearts. Jesus observed two actions that he condemned. Jesus, the just judge, will first condemn the scribes on the final day because they devour widows' houses. Now we need to understand that the scribes were not, as a rule, wealthy men. Uh, typically, they lived on gifts uh, that came from those they served, or possibly they lived on um, support given to them by benefactors. It's possible that Jesus was criticizing their habit of mooching off the generosity, the generous hospitality of people who could not really afford to give them that hospitality, not for as long as they demanded to have it. Um, you, might, uh, you might recall that God arranged for a widow to host and feed the prophet Elijah when there was a drought in the land. And in that case, God miraculously, uh, miraculously uh, multiplied that widow's one meal's worth of flour and one meal's worth of oil. And God made it to last for the length, of the remaining length of the, of the um, drought to feed her and her household, and, and the prophet Elijah. But the scribes, this case must have been much different to earn Jesus' rebuke. Uh, these guys were likely using their status and favor to extract, extract either meals and lodging or gifts from these widows, with the result being that the widows' households crumbled under the financial weight of it all. Longman and Garland point out that it's, it's possible, too, that the, the scribes cheated widows out of estates over which the scribes have been, had been entrusted as lawyers because they were given that sort of task in Israel in that day. So it's possible they were just embezzling from women the very funds they needed to live on without their husbands anymore. In any case, they targeted widows for their own material gain because these widows were vulnerable to manipulation, especially manipulation by leaders who were over them, and because these widows didn't have anyone with them to protect them from this harm. The scribes treated these very vulnerable women exactly opposite to the way God would have them and have us treat them. God spoke through Isaiah, Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 2. He said, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. To prey upon the vulnerability of widows, orphans, foreigners is to earn God's wrath, is to earn God's anger, to earn ultimately God's condemnation. And that's because God is 
as David wrote in Psalm 68. God is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. The weakest among us, the most vulnerable, the most unable to, uh, to defend themselves from harm are precious. They're very precious in the sight of God and in his heart. The Almighty acts as their defender and he expects his people to do the same. The scribes' pride blinded them. It blinded them so that they couldn't rightly, rightly comprehend God's law or even more likely blinded them so that they thought themselves above God's law as if it didn't apply to them somehow. And here's the point. Jesus will condemn these self-serving scribes because they misused, they abused their authority and they injured those that they were called to serve. And they did this all just to materially benefit themselves. This reality should sober us. It sobers me. Because as I said, we all have authority over others in this world as mothers and fathers, as husbands, as managers in the marketplace, as teachers and, and employers and community group leaders and children's ministry teachers. And the list is vast and I can't cover it all. The question is, are you using your authority to bless others? Are the vulnerable protected or harmed by your leadership? Are those you lead helped or are they hindered? Are they built up or are they, or are they torn down? Jesus cares deeply how you use your authority, the authority that he has given to you. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. God expects us to use the authority that he's given to us to fulfill these two great commands, the summary of the law. So Jesus is going to condemn them because they devour widows' houses. Secondly, Jesus is, is going to condemn them on the day of judgment because they for a pretense, make long prayers. Okay, Jesus, uh, I know, I know I can, I can go on a bit long when I, I perform the congregational prayer. I pr definitely pray longer than Joseph does. Uh, I know that at community group, I, I can go on maybe even a bit longer than all these tired folks in my living room uh, have the ability to withstand. Is that what Jesus is talking about? That, that I just pray too long? Probably not, although maybe, maybe I need to adjust things. Um, either the scribes were apt to offer long prayers when they prayed publicly, like in our congregational prayer, or they spent a great deal of time praying where other people could see them, like in the temple, which was meant to be a place of prayer. But Jesus doesn't just look at outward behavior. Jesus sees into our hearts. And he knew why the disciples offered long prayers in public or why the disciples prayed for a long time to be seen by others. Jesus says that the scribes pray for a long time for a pretense. By praying this way, the scribes are putting on a show. There's a falseness to their worship of God in prayer. Um, now, it's possible 
It's possible that they might have been using the worship of God through prayer as a way to be known as pious, to be counted as highly devoted to God, to be thought of as holy. That's, that's a possibility. But there seems as though there's something even more sinister in their praying long prayers. It's curious where Jesus placed this criticism. Um, He placed it after he accused them of devouring widows' houses. If Jesus knew that these prayers were motivated by the scribes' lust for popularity, for their seeking after human adulation, why didn't he mention their long prayers right after the other proud ways they had of acting, their long robes, their greetings, uh, their seats of honor, their praying forever. Why didn't he put it right there before he mentioned the devouring widow's houses? It seems right to understand that Jesus purposely linked their long prayers with devouring widows' houses. Commentators Longman and Garland wrote, Jesus further condemns their hypocrisy in uttering their long prayers that only masked their greed. There is a connection between their long prayers and their greed. There's a connection between them praying for a long time in public to be seen and their robbing widows of their savings. They were manipulating public opinion uh, to deceive both the widows that they hadn't yet robbed or to deceive the people who could otherwise uh, stand in judgment against them. And for this evil use of their authorities, the scribes will be very justly condemned by the Son of God on the last day. And that brings us to our third point, and a much more positive point. We are to follow leaders who are servant-hearted. There's a a clear alternative to proud, self-serving leaders who abuse their authority, who abuse their power. And Jesus didn't have to say a word about it. The disciples knew that that alternative to the misuse of authority that they were seeing in the scribes was Jesus himself. Jesus is the righteous leader who uses his authority to bless us, and he has a plan to replicate that leadership throughout his church. The Bible shows us a beautiful, glorious, holy authority, and he shows it to us in the form of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, his authority was connected to his humility. Jesus is the definition of humility. In our quest for humility, our Savior should be the example we most highly esteem. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, like these little babies we dedicated, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient as he grew and became an adult, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is a humble submission within the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father in all things. Jesus, God the Son, 
humbled himself by setting aside his divine rights to become a lowly creature and by being obedient to the Father. And that same humility, that same humility is at the heart of Jesus' work to redeem us from the bondage and penalty for our sin. His humility led him to obey the Father even to death on the cross. In our place he died, paying our penalty for sin and securing for us by his great grace salvation, freedom from sin, forgiveness before God, the righteousness of Christ given to us, fellowship forever in heaven with God. Jesus was the supreme servant leader who, as he said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Bible shows us this glorious Christ and his holy authority. Secondly, the Bible shows us the servant-hearted authority of the apostles. Servant-hearted authority should always be a hallmark of God's church because Jesus was purposeful to put it there. He taught the disciples to follow him in a way that, uh, in a way of humble and other-centered leadership. When pride or self-exaltation raised its ugly heads amongst his disciples, Jesus was direct and Jesus was firm. So when James and John, we'll remember this just from earlier in Mark, asked to sit at Jesus's right and at his left in glory, Jesus responds with this. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But, you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In Christ's kingdom, true greatness is measured by humble service to others. By sacrificial love for the benefit of others, to them. This servant-hearted use of authority was on dis full display in the Apostle Paul. We see it. He wrote so much of the uh, New Testament, and he was so personal in his letters that we can see this servant-hearted authority clearly. Here's how he described his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5, uh, 5 through 7. He said, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Not only did Paul and his team strive to be of no cost to the churches, but he also, he also suffered greatly in his loving and his sacrificial service to them. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul records that he and his team suffered great affliction in Asia. And he said, for we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
He was willing to sacrifice himself, really, to give up his life in an effort to bring the gospel to those he was called by God to serve. All of this was, according to Paul, his glad willingness to spend and be spent for the souls of those he was called to minister to. Friends, um, this is our aim as, as pastors of this church. Uh, and it's been the history of Sovereign Grace Church throughout its time. Uh, the humility and gentle authority of the pastors is what attracted Kid and me to this church. Um, I, I remember it as our first visit to this church on Sunday. Maybe it was later. I can't exactly recall. Um, and I, we heard our former pastor, Mark Mullery, who, who last pastored this church 25 years ago or so, um, we heard him speak with an authentic humility that I had just never seen in a pastor, though I had sat under what I thought were good pastors. Uh, during his sermon, Mark described talking to uh, our former pastor, Lynn Baird, Ryan's father, uh, and Ron, who at the time wasn't the pastor at the church. He was a community group leader, an, a, a key leader in the church. And he, he was describing, Mark was describing and being specific with us, a sin that he had confessed that week to Lynn and Ron. And he told us about it. And I was, I was floored. I mean, I was, I was amazed to see a pastor admit his own sin, to confess it transparently to the congregation, and to demonstrate his, his contrite repentance before them all. And, and I could see by Mark's doing this that this was not unusual. This was normal. There was something different about this church that I hadn't seen in the churches I had been a part of before. Uh, humility and other-centered use of authority marked Mark Mullery's ministry and marked Lynn Baird's ministry, who is now retired. Um, they passed it along to Ron, who Ron is a servant-hearted pastor. He's a servant-hearted man, and you have seen it. And I pray that humility and servanthood will mark my ministry here as well, and mark Tim Owens's ministry as he comes over to us. Your pastors, we desire, and we, we lean heavily on the Spirit's work to fulfill Peter's exhortation to pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We seek to rightly steward the authority we've been given to teach you to equip you, to care for you, to build you up so that you become more like Christ and that your service is more pleasing and glorifying to God. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, some concluding thoughts. Um, beware of proud leaders. Proud leaders who misuse or even abuse their God-given authority. Uh, you don't want the suffering that they can bring into your life 
or the hardship they can bring into and the harm they can bring into the body of Christ. So in that respect, would you do this for me? Would you pray for Ron and pray for me and pray for Tim Owens as he comes our way? Um, We suffer pride just like everyone else does. Ask the Lord to grow our humility, to incline our hearts to serve for your benefit and for God's great glory. There are plenty of Christian leaders who may yet influence your Christian lives, whether through digital media, through conferences, books, or even as God wills, if he moves you from here to another church. So here's some guidance in choosing leaders to follow. And the the worship team can come back up and uh, get set. We'll be done in just a few minutes. Um, So here's some guidance. And, And young people who are with us, you got... You've got a life ahead of you of discerning leaders and deciding whether you're going to uh, put yourself under their influence. So here's some guidance. Beware of pastors and Bible teachers, spiritual leaders who speak smugly about their doctrine and look down at everyone who sees the Bible a bit differently than they do within the realm of good but different. Those who hold to God's sovereignty Those who hold to God's election and salvation have a tendency to be uniquely proud about their doctrine. And that that includes us. That includes this church. And this is sad because knowing that we're saved by God's grace through faith should keep us from boasting, not cause us to boast. Now, I say we being we being a people that believe in God's sovereignty, believe in God's election. Let's be careful not to be a people that look down on others for not agreeing with us about this. Beware of pastors and leaders who never mention their sin, either publicly or in private conversation. Pastors should model righteousness. That is true. They should be models of it. They should also be modeling the fight for righteousness and the fight to put to death sin in our lives. Thirdly, beware of pastors and Bible teachers who plead for your financial contributions and live extravagant lives. I don't think I need to say more about that. And fourthly, beware of leaders who make big of themselves and make big of their ministries. You will recognize this this bragging. You will recognize this arrogance. So, Beware of the leaders you place yourself under and keep watch of your own souls. Resist the temptation to be proud and to misuse the authority that God has given to you. The Father's eye is attracted to those who learn humility in Christ. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's be attractive to God by being humble and contrite in spirit and trembling before his word. And in order to do this, I suggest that we meditate on and cry out for the spirit to help us to fulfill God's command through Paul in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, part of this I'm reading again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. We can do this because it's ours through faith in Jesus Christ, our being united to the only righteous one. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord God. Thank you for our worship today, Father God. Thank you for our glad praise that you have reconciled us, Lord God. By your grace, you have reconciled us. By nothing we could have done, you have reconciled sinful souls to yourself because Jesus died for us on the cross and you were so gracious to give us faith in his work. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, blessing upon Lucas and Evan, Lord God, and their lives and their parents, parenting of them. We pray blessing upon the Bairds as they go, Ryan and Shaleen and the kids, Father God. And we pray blessing, Father God, for us. Father, would you keep this church in your love? Lord God, keep this church in humble, holy use of authority, Lord God, both in its pastors and everyone who leads in this church and everyone in this church who leads in all the different spheres of our lives, Lord God. Would you please help us, Lord God, not to place ourselves under leaders who are proud and misuse their authority. Help us not to be those leaders, Lord God. We don't deserve this, Lord, but we pray, Father God, that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. Amen.